Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Danny Welch. We're going to talk about mitochondria in our cells and how they interact with uh, cancer and metastases. So, Danny, thanks for coming. Thank you, Rich. Tell me what okay. your position is now. Yeah, I'm a professor of cancer biology at the University of Kansas Medical Center and uh, associate director for education and career development at the cancer center as well. Okay, excellent. And um, tell me about your, your current research. What are you looking at? Well, my lab focuses on uh, the topic of metastasis, which is the spread of cancer to uh, other tissues in the body where they'll grow to make a secondary tumor. And most of my career has been in looking at the genetics that underlie that process. We first started out looking for suppressing genes, the, like the brakes on a car that keep the cancers localized. And uh, my lab, I can say, with talented people around me, has mm. discovered eight of those. And we've been studying their function. The first of them we named somewhat in fun, but it was uh, called KISS-1 because we discovered it in Hershey, Pennsylvania when I was at Penn State. And KISS-1 ultimately turns out to be the master regulator of puberty. It's a neurotransmitter and a patient cannot undergo puberty without KISS-1. So the irony of puberty beginning with a KISS shouldn't be lost on anybody listening. Quick question here. How do you believe uh, metastasis starts and why does it start? You know, in brain cancers, I've heard that uh, uh, certain kind of brain cancers don't seem to metastasize, but many other cancers do. So why do you think uh, it happens in the first place and what would be the mechanism? That's a great question for which I don't have a really solid answer. Personally, my experience tells me that a lot of what cancer cells do is try and recapitulate what happened uh, during embryo embryogenesis or fetal development. And they're looking to find that partner to make them stop. 
So that's what I think is going on, but that's 100% speculation. Um, yeah, no, speculation is, uh, I like it. It's okay. And your question or your comment about brain cancers, they are really highly invasive, but they don't metastasize much. So that's also one of the key points when talking about the process of metastasis is that people have to distinguish between just merely invading and going somewhere and colonizing another tissue. If it does that, is it is it still considered cancer or is it, it's not a metastasis, but it spreads out, I guess, from the primary. And so it's, um, it's a cancer. So if, if they invade that defines them as a cancer, but metastasis is a subset of those invasive cells. And anyway, the point I was going to make with the the kiss one a, a minute ago was that kiss one does, is it allows every step except growth after the cells have already seeded other tissues. So we're really excited that that could be a therapeutic for patients because most of the earlier steps have taken place by the time a cancer has been diagnosed. So that that's one of our exciting, exciting directions. The role of KISS-1 in normal tissue is what? And then what is the role of KISS-1 in, um, in cancer? So in normal tissue, um, it has a couple of different roles, but the major one that's been studied is it's made in, in, in a part of the brain that stimulates the pituitary axis and then the, the gonads to initiate puberty. And it also seems to regulate aspects of pregnancy. And there are a lot of labs that are studying that around the world that, who would be, of, I think, of interest to your audience. And in, in terms of the cancer, again, it's ambiguous what it's doing, but uh, the cancer cells moved all these other tissues and what KISS does is it sort of keeps them there in a state of suspended animation, a dormant state for a period of time. Okay. So that, and if bas- basically my thinking is if we can do that, then we met, rendered cancer controllable, a lot like diabetes. We don't cure diabetes, we just control it. And we can make cancer chronic disease rather than a, a deadly acute one. What would you do? You downregulate the expression of, of KISS-1 and in cancer tumors? Actually, yeah, we would, would administer KISS-1 oh, to a cancer patient. And the reason that's promising is it's normally, it can be found uh, in high levels in the bloodstream and have no negative effect on patients. It's currently used in clinical trials to help children who don't undergo puberty because of a de- defect in the KISS axis. So it's it's already proven to be safe in people, but understanding how it works in the cancer is really a direction that we'd like to go. So one of the things that popped up with KISS that uh, I think was the reason that this call was originally scheduled is we had found that KISS-1 regulates the reproduction or the genesis of mitochondria. And so it alters metabolism in cells. And that, that observation made us think a bit more about the possible roles of mitochondria in the process of metastasis. And uh, a friend of mine, uh, Kent Hunter, who's at the National Cancer Institute, did a really mm-hmm. awesome experiment. He took a transgenic mouse that has an oncogene in it that would make mammary tumors or breast tumors in a mouse. And he crossed those with a bunch of other strains of mice and then looked in the kids and showed that some background genetics 
would suppress metastasis and others made it more, made the, the cancers more metastatic. When you say more metastatic, what does that mean? They did it faster, they did it more, they went to different tissues they don't normally go to. Like, how did you uh, characterize that? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Great question. Usually in mice, we don't see too many metastases outside of the lung in these models. So he, and then we, we confirmed it in our models. It made them go to more often to tissues and then it allowed them to grow at, at uh, different rates in different tissues. So uh, it, it, depending upon the, the tumor type and what was driving it, it made those changes. That was a vague answer, but I hope it made sense. Yeah, no. It seems like cancer has a tropism for certain tissues. Like I, I looked up, you know, common metastatic sites for, for various cancers. I can't tell. It doesn't seem to be clear enough signal, but I can't tell if certain cancers have certain tropisms for certain tissue, meaning like, you know, this kind of breast cancer tends to go to the liver. If that's the case, why would that happen? Or do you think it's more of a, just a random process where, met, met, you know, metastatic sites tend to go? It's not random. That's been known for a couple hundred years now. There are two lines of thinking, and I'm going to, I'll tell you a bit of both of them. Um, one is the, can, and, and this is true for the most part, the cancers metastasize to the first capillary bed they encounter after they leave the primary tumor. So that explains a lot of colon cancer going to the liver or pancreas cancer going to the liver and the like. But then there are other cancers and breast and prostate are among them that go to most commonly the bone. And that's definitely not the first capillary bed they encounter. So that prompted a fellow named Stephen Paget back in the 1880s, almost 1880, 1890. He called it the seed in the soil where the mm. cancer cell is the seed and each tissue is a different soil. And uh, you have to have a right match of the seed in the soil to get them to grow. And there's evidence that supports both of those theories. And I, I find it fascinating. Different labs have looked for vascular zip codes, they're commonly called. They, these are markers that are in each tissue. And the cancer cells recognize the right zip code. And they say, aha, this is a place with, with good soil for me. How would cancer cells know that? Like, uh, is, is a tumor releasing, you know, extracellular vesicles that are doing niche construction? Or, you know, how do you think that uh, this happens? They are doing that. But also, almost every cell type has receptors on it that recognize things that are expressed on other molecules or surfaces. So they're, they're, they're just sticky fingers, basically. And the uh, pattern of what those receptors varies by cell type. One of your points, you were asking, like, does a certain kind of breast cancer go to a certain tissue and that type of thing? 
Mm-hmm. Um, a, a real kind of easy way to illustrate that is can the most common breast cancers uh, express the hormone receptors for progestin, progesterone and estrogen. And those tend to metastasize slower, but they go a lot to the bone. Then there's the triple negative breast cancer, which has no none of the currently targetable growth factor receptors on them. And those metastasize early, but they tend to be more broad in their pattern of metastasis. So you, you were right in your question, and we still don't understand exactly how all that's happening. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, has anyone been able to capture a uh, primary tumor in the, in the process of starting metastasis? I guess, you know, I've heard there's an epithelial to mesenchymal transition. How would you characterize how metastasis initially starts in a given tissue? Well, uh, you've mentioned EMT or epithelial mesenchymal transition. Uh, That is clearly an important aspect of uh, many metastases, but there have been a few studies that show that that's not a requirement. In other words, there are many roads that lead to Rome, consider metastasis that way. So besides EMT, there are clusters of cells that will metastasize. Um, I joke when I'm giving, I have some slides that I use when I'm teaching basic metastasis, and I refer to those clusters like teenagers at the local mall. They move as a pack, disrupting everything in their path. They don't necessarily mean harm, but they do it. So they can move as clusters. And another uh, type of invasion towards metastasis involves amoeboid movement where they're not even making proteinases that degrade the matrix that uh, the support stroma in the tissues. So again, there are multiple ways to accomplish the same thing. And if you block one of them, but leave open the opportunity to do something else, it's, it's still, uh, it's still possible to get metastases. So from the perspective of when I mentioned studying suppressors of metastasis, that was experimentally uh, a choice that we made because if you block a step completely, the tumor cell cannot metastasize because it can't go to the next step. But if you promote something, but it's blocked at some other step, you would never know that it's promoted. I hope that's making some sense. So I, I mean, but there would be like intermediate stages where, I mean, if you're able to characterize the metastasis process and look at, you know, the different biochemical steps it goes through, I mean, then you wouldn't be able to have insight into that, right? Yeah, I think we will get that insight and we are getting that insight, but it's it's a bit more challenging um, because there are by, bypass mechanisms and the like. I liken it to a, a, a plate of spaghetti and meatballs at your favorite Italian restaurant. And we'll just use two meatballs, but you can put them at nine and three on the clock. And all of those uh, noodles are connecting points between the two meatballs and experimentalists take a fork and they take one noodle and they twist it around their fork. So it's a bite bite size piece. But, and then they say, well, this is the connection between those two meatballs, but the other meatballs and noodles, the meatballs are still there. And so are the other noodles. They just may not be as direct an effect. Okay. So who understands in the goriest detail how metastasis start and, you know, proceed through, through completion. Like what, 
what do you believe? We have a primary tumor hanging out there. Is it trying to metastasize the entire time it's around? Or does it reach critical mass and there's certain like quorum sensing or signaling that, that tells it, okay, we need to start finding new new places to go to? Like, how do you think it happens? I think there's evidence on both sides for that. If you look clinically at following tumors over a period of time, establishment of metastases from a clinician's perspective tends to occur late. The tumor's got to have a critical mass. It gets to a size uh, and the probability of finding metastases is higher. But in the last uh, two or three years with the advent of really uh, sensitive techniques with PCR and the like, uh, we, we, the field, has begun to detect uh, disseminating tumor cells well before a primary tumor can be detected by most imaging methods, which is darn frightening to think that they're already setting, shedding cells so, so long before we know the cancer is even there. So uh, I guess moving to an area that you'll, you'll know more about, what is the role of mitochondria specifically in you know, either tumor formation, the inception of cancer, or metastases? I'm going to uh, sidestep that slightly because there is almost no data that mitochondria are involved in the development of cancer by driving it or forcing it to happen. But what we think is really happening is that the the genome and the mitochondria are modifying loci. So that experiment I started to talk about with uh, Kent Hunter, uh, where he did those crosses, it was always with female mice of the modifying strain. And since you inherit mitochondria only from your mother, the alternative explanation for his data was that the mitochondrial genome could be impacting the cancer uh, to change its metastatic phenotype. So uh, what we did is we made a mouse or set of mice that have the same nuclear genome, but we've given them different mitochondrial genomes. And by changing only the mitochondrial genetics, we could replicate the results from Kent Hunter's really elegant genetic crosses. So now we've isolated the mitochondrial genetics as a variable in the experiment. Doing that, we, uh, and and, and I will say, when I called Kent and told him this, uh, he did like any good scientist. He goes, I really have a hard time believing it, but I cannot deny the data. Uh, Mm. And that's, you know, I appreciated that response because that's what we should all do uh, when looking at any any data. Okay, if the data experiment was done right, we've done the controls, the data are the data. Now we have to revise our hypothesis. And, and, and he's been terrific in that way. And um, we're, we're, we're trying to look at ways to explore it together. So, so we replicated with the genetic crosses, but I think um, one of the fun things that come to a couple of points you've raised and asking questions. Uh, one morning, literally, I was uh, taking a shower and kind of my brain was beginning to function. And I realized that when we do those crosses, it's not only the tumor cells that inherit the mitochondria, it's all the supporting stroma. So uh, I, I was talking to my grad student, Amanda Brinker, and um, we said, well, we can test that. We can take tumor cells that are the same nuclear genetic background, and we can implant them into the mice that have only the mitochondria different in the stroma. 
And when we did that, we saw that the stroma would give a three to five fold difference in metastasis depending upon uh, polymorphisms in the mitochondrial genome. That, I mean, three to five folds, that was, that's just huge. We would take tumor cells and we injected them into these mice that have the mitochondria different in the stroma. That's all the tissue that supports the tumor. And the, stru- the structural tissue that supports the tumor is, a, is that called the stroma? Is yes. That what you mean? Yes. Okay. So when we did that, uh, depending upon the mitochondria that were in the stroma, I'll, I'll give a detail. It just adds some clarity to it. A, a, a mouse called C57, that inhibited metastasis by 60 to 80%. When we have C3H mitochondria, that's another strain of mouse, mm-hmm. metastasis was three or five-fold more uh, number of metastases. So how, how long after you uh, would inject, so these tumor cells that you're injecting, it's it's just the nuclear DNA part has been taken from, you know, exogenous tumor cells, and that's that's what's injected into the uh, the mouse, or is it wholesale cells that uh, that what? I mean, how have they been modified? The tumor cells are just their cell lines that were isolated from uh, mice that match the nuclear genome of these. So that way we could eliminate the immune system as a tissue transplant rejection uh, is an explanation. Okay. Uh, so a couple of things that we've been looking at, and I just said we eliminated the immune system, but we didn't. We eliminated transplant immunity as, as a mechanism, but we found that the immune system is different in these mice and the mitochondria control that. And, and uh, virtually all uh, immune cell killing involves a burst of activity from mitochondria. So that's why we started to look there. Um, but since you mentioned quorum sensing, I'll tell you something that's uh, as yet unpublished, but we're very excited about it. The prevailing theory uh, nowadays about mitochondria is that they were ancient bacteria that were engulfed by some other cell. Right. And they, you know, they've, they've learned to coexist. So uh, your comment of quorum sensing uh, made me ask the question, if mitochondria are ancient bacteria, do they retain the ability to communicate with bacteria? Yeah, I would suppose so. Or maybe, and, you know. And if they can communicate with bacteria, do they make things that are like quorum sensing that can alter the growth of bacteria, and if they do that, then the microbiome would change. So I interviewed a, a woman named Florencia McAllister who's studying pancreatic cancer and pancreatic tumors, and she had told me, this is maybe two years ago, um, the localized microbiome around the tumors is different from the rest of the healthy pancreas. So it definitely seems like, you know, once a tumor forms, there's a whole microenvironment there. I mean, it, it accumulates its own microbiome, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it does seem like uh, all that happens for sure. Yeah. And, well, and so we, we said, let's just test this in a simple, simpler system um, because people studying microbiota um, in individual tissues, it it's a hundred thousand dollar experiment to do it in one tissue. Uh, so we, we, we couldn't do it that much, but, we did it in just the feces. Um, 
which have bucket loads of bacteria. And in fact, the mitochondria changed only between eight and 15 bacteria in the microbiome. And it was very reproducible. Some grew more, some grew much less. And we are actively searching for what the signal is from the mitochondria that regulate those specific species of bacteria. So keep your fingers crossed for me, please. I, I'm, I'm excited by that because I think that opens up an entire new field uh, to explain how the microbiome is influencing so much of what our body does. Um, for, I mean, uh, for example, um, in the context of my, uh, mitochondria, um, people who are obese have different metabolisms than people who are non-obese. And microbiomes uh, are uh, emerging as one of the key regulators of those things. So the bacteria are also communicating back to the micro- mitochondria. So we, we're, we're looking at some crosstalk there. And if we can just understand it, I think we're uh, going to be in a, a much better place to try and deal with these complex kind of mm. diseases. You know, is cancer a separate life form? At what point, you know, when a tumor starts to grow, does it have enough voice, let's say, you know, in biochemical signaling within a tissue where it can, it seems like, again, a tumor perhaps, I mean, is very heterogeneous, but perhaps it does act as one and perhaps it is essentially a separate life form at some point. Yeah, I, I mean, I only modify your your the words slightly. It it cannot exist without the patient or the host, but it definitely has a, a set of behaviors that it's controlling, and it is trying to exert influence on the rest of the body. Unfortunately, it does it in a destructive way. Yeah, more parasitic than symbiotic. I yeah, you know, well, I guess because at some point again, its its growth is uh, is so fast that it uh, well, it has to defend itself. I mean, which kind of signals to me that it could be its own life form. You know, it tricks our own immune system and it, uh, you know, there's angiogenesis, there's metastasis. and These all seem to be the hallmarks of a, um, again, uh, possibly of a life form. Yeah, but, I, um, I'm not disagreeing with you. I, you know, it's, it's just the, 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 the nuance of some of the words. Yeah, I understand. But, no problem. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I can't disagree with you. And that's, I think, part of the reason it's been so difficult. It's almost like they've got a brain, but not quite. <laughs> so uh, just when you think you've got a handle on things, they, they've they tricked us, um, like the immune system. I, that has freaked me out since the early days when I was studying immunology. It's just how the immune cells can be tricked into actually helping cancer cells invade mm-hmm. and metastasize. Their job is to... Um, eliminate the cancer but it doesn't but it's they're tricked into doing something different what kind of picture is coming together for you through all your research of cancer you know how is it um i don't know where do you see this going your research i mean in, in one hand we're talking about big concepts you know is cancer alive why is there metastasis etc you know how do the mitochondria interact and then in other hands you're going to like very narrow molecular mechanisms you know like the kiss one um, adding that to the mix to slow or stop metastasis, et cetera. So, I mean, you kind of go back and forth, you zoom in and out, it sounds like between, you know, the very specific and the more general, but overall, yeah. like, what is your picture of cancer? How is it different from when you first started your research years ago? 
Oh, a great question. Well, when I started graduate school, I remember learning the statistic that no woman with stage four breast cancer was expected to live five years. And today, that number is about 50% live five years with stage four or metastatic disease. So it's changed a lot, not enough, but a lot. I mean, from a philosophical level, when I when I started graduate school and working in a lab, I wanted to do something that would directly help patients. And I was looking at things that were, could I hand this directly to a patient, like a baton in a race? But but I became more enamored with looking at some of the fundamental things that we were really early in the pipeline to to handing it off to the patient. And so that's why you're hearing kind of the big picture and the, the, the narrow picture. From from my perspective, there are, there are two things, and I think both of them are, are somewhat related. Um, at least I hope that you'll be convinced that I, they're related. So I mentioned the KISS, and we're hoping to make fragments of KISS-1 that could be administered to patients. Uh, and that sounds trivial, but it's proven to be a bit more difficult than we would like. The mitochondria project is a lot more difficult because if you think about the genetics of the mitochondria, it's almost all RNA that it's encoding, transfer Mm. RNAs and ribosomal RNAs. And we had to reconcile the specificity with uh, altering metabolism and stuff and concluded the metabolism was not the key, but the sequence of those RNAs are the key. And so we've been looking at a new class of signaling molecules from these transfer RNAs and ribosomal RNAs that get secreted and they're found in the plasma and they are signaling molecules that represent a class of signaling molecules that really were first discovered less than 10 years ago called tRNA fragments and ribosomal RNA fragments. Okay. And Right now, we are trying to isolate, define, and reproduce those tRNA fragments where we have polymorphisms uh, in our the mitochondria and test their functions. And the fact that they are secreted in the plasma and they can be found there in some clinical samples means they're stable enough that we could make drugs or drug-like molecules from them. So... A goal for me in my career is just to have one thing, which would be more than most, that actually mm-hmm. makes it into the clinic. But at the very, that's the long-term objective. The shorter-term sure. stuff is to understand how both of those molecules are working. And even if it doesn't make it to the clinic, as I'm outlining it here, hopefully it'll set the stage for the next person since you've been we've been talking about uh, mitochondria, I totally forgot the I guess the Warburg effect in cancer. I mean, there's a lot of uh, you know the metabolic theory of cancer says or seems to say that mitochondria are damaged. I, don't, I haven't explained, I haven't heard explained how or why. I mean, cancer. I mean, do you observe that? And so, when you're doing experiments with mitochondria and cancer, how do you know that the, the material you're using is not damaged in such a way as to be you know to be skewed where you're not getting a true result? It is interesting. The Warburg effect kind of languished for about 60 years and then suddenly has made a resurgence. The mitochondria 
don't appear to be all that damaged. They are just regulated differently. I'm going to, if, if you have never talked to Matthew Vanderheiden at MIT or Chi Van Dang, who's at Wistar, those two, uh, oh, and Craig Thompson at Sloan Kettering, those three could give you about a billion times better explanation of the Warburg effects. Okay. Well, so, hopefully I can uh, speak to them at some point soon. Yeah, I'll ask you um, later for referrals. But yeah, that's great. So, but with regard to the way we made our mice, one of the things we did is um, we did not use traditional methods to make the mice and switch the mitochondria. We actually used a micro needle to move the nuclei. So they were never exposed to any mutagens and we sequenced them. So they are exactly normal as uh, from the normal mice that would have just bred, except we swapped out the nucleus. Mm-hmm. So, but your question had an underlying point and, and that's, uh, that's what we were trying to avoid. We didn't want to screw up the mitochondria so that that was driving what we were studying. And as best okay. we can tell, we didn't, but hope, and hopefully we didn't, but there's always a possibility there was some effect that we have not been made aware of. In, in your research, though, do you have uh, experts on mitochondria that you, I guess, you consult with or employ? Or I talk to people at uh, various institutions. I have a colleague, uh, Isidore Ragutsis at uh, Thomas Jefferson, who's a leading expert in uh, um, these fragments that I was talking about, tRNA and RNA fragments. Scott mm-hmm. Ballinger, with whom we made the mice, he's studying these mice in the context of heart disease and diabetes, where they've had tremendous effects. So we talk all the time. I, I shouldn't admit this because it's going public, but I will go and say uh, for any student who might be hearing it, I hated studying all the metabolism stuff. And now I regret not being much more proficient in it, but I'm glad there are people who are, that I can draw upon. Um, mm-hmm. And we each bring a little different perspective to the story. And that's what I think makes our science kind of, more interesting uh, because yeah, yeah, they, they see something in what I'm doing from a different perspective, but we're, we're looking at the same, same thing and, and we're both able to uh, achieve from it. Yeah, no, that's excellent. So, Very good. So um, I guess last question or so, what, what do you see as uh, possible in the next you know five or 10 years based on your research? I hope that we'll do a couple of things. I, one is uh, with some of the metastasis suppressors that we'll be able to, I'm meeting with a colleague here. We're hoping to design some targeting agents to carry them into cancer cells. And uh, we'll, we'll try and test those from the mitochondrial project, which I, I think is I'm devoting more of my mental energy to it now, because to me, it's so different mm-hmm. that it excites me in a way that these suppressors we've been studying for 20 years they're still exciting, but I kind of like new. So shiny object in the corner. I think these tRNA fragments, if I were in my 20s, I, I would think I was at the earliest stages of something that might be like CRISPR or microRNAs and that type of thing in terms of how they're going to change the field. And I, I've never said that kind of thing before, uh, but this is so fundamental. They're present. Uh, in bacteria, viruses, 
they regulate retrotransposons, that the breadth that these things are going to impact is already being elucidated, but nobody knows how they're working. And I think that's going to be a five to 10 year Eureka moment. Okay. I hope that's correct. Yeah. Yeah, no, it makes sense. So that's, that's, that's where we're headed. Um, hopefully we'll get there. But Danny, yeah. you've been a, a great guest. I, I really appreciate you being here. And um, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? If they go to uh, the kumc.edu, the Kansas University Medical Center.edu, there, there's a website there. I am not a big person on social media or anything like that, but if they uh, reach out, if they have questions, feel free. Uh, there, there's ways to contact me via the website, and I will shamelessly uh, listen to every idea and in, integrate it if I think I can, and hopefully uh, reciprocate with some other kind of discussion. Okay. Well, very good. And Danny, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you. I hope uh, you have a great holiday season. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.